welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today we hear from all three media's Sally Habershaw, Banerjee's Matt Creasy, ITV Studios' Julie Meldall-Johnson, Fifth Season's Alistair Jennings and the British Film Commission's Katie Kotok about the rise of international co-productions. Roku Media's David Eilenberg, Brian Tenenbaum and Jennifer Vo on the US ad-supported streamer's content strategy and Banerjee's Gary Milne at the Annecy International Animation Film Festival in France. With global streamers, US studios and broadcasters alike putting the brakes on spending in the face of a global economic downturn, but audience demand for premium quality TV remaining high, international co-productions are arguably gaining momentum. A string of senior executives from across the business discussed these themes and more at C21's Content LA recently. All three media international executive vice president of America's Sally Habershaw, Banerjee Wright's executive vice president of sales, co-productions and acquisitions Matt Creasy, ITV Studios executive vice president of global content Julie Meldall-Johnson, fifth season senior vice president of APAC sales Alistair Jennings and British Film Commission executive vice president of US production Katie Kotok spoke to Ed Waller. I guess the, the premise of, of, of this, this panel is that there's a growth in international co-production and I just want to explore whether that's the case. With, with the help of Katie, we, we dug up some data for the, uh, the co-productions that are happening in the UK using the high-end television programming initiative. Uh, 4.3 billion from 195 productions spent in 2022, um, of which there were uh, 36.5 million were co-productions in that year, which is the highest number ever seen since the introduction of that tax relief in 2013. Also some data from PACT to bring it a little bit more international. UK co-productions in the year 20-21 generated 99 million, 90% of which were from the uh, North America, with uh, Europe being 5% and the rest of the world 5%. So I just want to get some thoughts from the panel about this. Why is it happening, uh, this growth in co-production between the, uh, the, U- the US and European partners? And I'm going to start just with Katie, if I may, just to explain some of those numbers that you kindly shared with us. Sure. So I've been working with a lot of U.S. streamers and studios and production companies over the many years that I've been at the British Film Commission. And the U.K. tax relief was instrumental in attracting a lot of production to the U.K. There are treaty co-productions, which from 2018 to 22 have seen an increase, but the treaty... co-productions tend to be a very small fraction. It's more the inward investment, the internationally financed projects that are coming in and partnering with producers and with uh, screen agencies and other personnel in the UK to make their projects there because it's a robust industry. So I think as Ed uh, pointed out, the, the growth from when the TV tax credit was introduced in the UK in 2013 all the way to 20 has just been an upward trajectory. A lot of that obviously is due to um, streaming and the interest in kind of global stories, I think, and global audiences, which I'm sure the rest of the panel can comment on as well. Um, but, But that's how I fit into the equation. Fantastic. Thank you, Katie. I'm going to bring in Sally, if I may, just to give you all initial thoughts on this uh, increase in co-productions, obviously with the US being your territory. Um, I wouldn't say increase. I would say at a constant. Uh, You know, I don't think we can negate the fact that we've got some 
strong headwinds at the moment, uh, certainly in terms of the conglomeration uh, of, all the, of all the brands out there, in terms of la mass layoffs, um, budget freezes. You know, the market is troubled, uh, and I don't think we can sort of... Uh, ignore that but you know we, we we just have to pivot and be really creative and look for partners who are scaling back and possibly trying to be a bit more creative with their spend um you know we we're now partnering with platforms or networks that we've never done business with we announced a collaboration with cw our first network co-production on a project called joan starring sophie turner um so that's sort of an interesting route we've never seen. Equally, new platforms in the form of AVOD. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, we've got a co-production with two brothers finalizing at the moment uh, with Freevee um, called Boat Story. So I think it's more about being creative, uh, but not pretending that the market is really that vibrant at the moment. Fantastic. We can come back to some of those points in a moment. Matt, what's your initial thoughts on this? Shall I say boom in co-production? Um, I, th I think, actually, I'm going to be a bit more doom-monger, actually. I think it's, um, <laughs> I actually think it's a bit, little bit depressed at the moment because we've, we've all, all, all of our companies have um, had a really good run in the last few years where co-productions really has accelerated with the, you know, the, 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 the sort of devouring of content across a lot of the new streamers for them setting up, etc. So as much as we've seen in the US, this sort of contraction on um, the businesses across the S-Bots, that's impacted co-productions as well. So, you know, you're taking, if you're taking out shows now for pitching where maybe 18 months ago you could get six or seven pitches for, you know, at, at script stage on co-productions, I think that's diminished at the moment and I think there's some pretty choppy waters. So I agree with Sally that there's new partners and you, know, you have to be nimble, but we are in a period at the moment where we're sort of having to sort of ride it out slightly for sure, because uh, there is a, you know, if you look at certain um, streamers, for example, they really wanted to lean into the international space in terms of the US Copro. I know internationally, obviously they're growing, but with data coming in and maybe not all of those shows always working and maybe some of it being occasionally quite niche, there is definitely a step back for a degree. Now, I think it will come back again, but I'd say at the moment, it's pretty tough in terms of co-productions in the US specifically. You, in our prep chat for this panel, Matt, you said that the, some parts of the US had fallen out of love with UK content. Well, there's a lot of UK content. We have to, you know, there's, there's a huge amount of UK content that's coming through all the time, and it can't all find a home, you know, and uh, there's talent is very important, and that's driving again what actually can get picked up. It, it comes down to the simple aspect of, of all the shows launching on channels or streamers, how do they stand out? And they stand out by being able to show the talent in the show, et cetera. And not every British show has that talent. It's domestic. So it doesn't mean it's a bad show. It's just that not everything is going to sell anymore. They haven't fallen out of love. It's more that there isn't necessarily the opportunities that there were in the last three years. We can apologise for bringing the mood down already. And I'm sure ITV now are going to say, no, it's amazing. And, uh, <laughs> well, let's hear, let's hear from Julie. What's your take? We've, we, we have, we've had, yes, there's a boom. No, there isn't. And there might be. What's your take? I mean, I think, I think that, you know, there's the kind of stats that Katie, Katie mentioned. It has been, it has been a boom. We've, we've, been, we've been really lucky um, over the last couple of years. I think that the boom in co-productions has come from 
um, not just producers in the UK, but others that have really, the bar for creative ambition has gone up so much. The cost of production has gone up so much. So finding partners, co-production partners, pre-sale partners from the US, Australia, other places has been really important. Um, and it's, it's, it's been a really good ride. I, I, think, I think you guys have, uh, I think we're experiencing the same as you, as you are. But, you know, we, we will continue to find uh, good partners. We will, we've, we've done a couple of co-productions this year with a you know, very um, constant partner of ours, PBS. Uh, there are some new entrants to the market. We've done a couple of uh, co-productions with BritBox that have taken a, a sort of a, a pan-regional footprint and come, come in very early to do that. Um, we've got, found new partnerships in Peacock and Roku. So there are, there are new players there. But, yeah, there's, there's headwinds as well. In, in, in Europe, you were saying on the phone earlier that the, although there might be some, some growth between the transatlantic copos, but with, you know, you're saying that in, in the Nordic region, the co-productions are down in, in other parts of Europe. What do you mean by that? So the Nordic regions, you know, they, they've by necessity been huge uh, co-production. It's been a co-production region for a long time. They understand from, from, from a lot of the producers that it's, it's becoming a lot harder within the Nordics themselves. Uh, to, to finance the shows that they, they are having to look further afield to, to Europe and elsewhere. Uh, but then there's, 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 there's booms in other places. Um, Alice and I were just talking about Australia feeling like they're becoming really an important part of, of planning co-productions. Cool. Yeah, let's, let's bring in Alice. Um, uh, overseeing the, the APAC region for, uh, for fifth season. Tell us about the sort of the growth of, of Asia slash US co-productions. So, um, you know, Fifth Season is an independent global studio. We see ourselves as a borderless operation, even though we're headquartered here in, in Los Angeles. I'm not. Um, you know, the, the business for us, we were really um, known and, and synonymous for large-scale co-productions achieved between the US and the UK and stemming originally from shows like The Night Manager and Killing Eve, then going through uh, normal people, conversations with friends. I think we've seen a very steady um, and, and great, great rich uh, pipe from limited, ultra-high premium, um, very, very strongly talent-driven um, engineered shows like that, which we're continuing to work on. So I think, um, as, as Sally said, um, it's a state of, um, you know, continuing that, that trend for us. But also, as Caddy mentioned, global storytelling is really, really sought after. Um, and we're finding that there are some new bedfellows that we have never um, seen working quite together before in the way that they are now. So um, Woman in the Wall is a new co-production for us between the BBC and Showtime, first ever co-production um, from the respective drama departments there. Um, probably helped to land because um, Ruth Wilson being um, in the lead, also serving as executive producer, it made that uh, a strong package to present to Showtime. Um, so the US and UK um, angle is continuing to be a really important one for us. Um, but for me, sitting in Asia Pacific, you know, we're now seeing Australia is becoming a very key contributor to co-productions that perhaps weren't quite as easy to swing past the, the US before. Fantastic. Thanks for that. Um, I want to, I want to uh, just look at some of the, uh, the, the reasons for, for, for the driving co-productions. We've, we've talked about the economic headwinds. We've talked about the rising creative ambitions that Julie mentioned. That You said uh, earlier that the SVODs have set the bar so high that distributors can't fill all the gap. Um, I think that's a significant point. But, uh, but if, the, if these things are all driving the price up, Matt, you said to me that more expensive programs are easier to co-produce. What did well, you mean by that? Well, I... 
the more, I think premium, the premium space is really where the co-production space is still very interesting. I think that's where, and it's also what we define as co-production. You know, co-production can mean true co-production where the financing's coming in throughout the actual production itself and there's notes on scripts and there's um, approval over talent. Then we've got sort of pre-sale and then we've got sort of more acquisition. It all kind of gets wrapped up in the word co-production. But I think um, premium content definitely has more opportunity because it has to sit alongside the US productions. And the US productions are obviously of a certain level and certain level of talent. So I think that's where the opportunities really lie, is with the premium space. And it goes back to the area that premium also probably means sort of more global, more international, more of a feel that audiences can relate to, as opposed to more domestic production, which I mentioned earlier, which feels more domestic. So, yeah, I do think, and, you know, we... Um, at Banerjee, we've in the last year we've had um, Rogue Heroes, the Steve Knight show that launched on MGM Plus, which was shown here yesterday. You know that's a you know, that's over five million pounds an episode production, which is a hefty production for the BBC. Um, so, but because it sort of stands out because of the talent and production values, you feel there's more opportunity. The challenge for all of us, though, with those is that. For UK production, there is only a small percentage, well, there's a percentage that's been put in by the partner in the UK. So with soft money and tax credits, there's normally a very big gap still to be filled, and those gaps are getting bigger, and that's, that's a challenge because they can be some pretty hefty um, deficits that all of our companies are paying in order to get these shows made because you can't necessarily wait for a US partner to come in to get the show financed, you have to take the risk yourself because the show has to go into production. So um, I think there's a lot of us who sort of are holding our breath quite a bit, um, having several sleepless nights. Sorry, there I go, depressed again. But uh, <laughs> um, honestly, it's a fabulous the roller coaster and, uh, ride of emotions. Yeah. This panel. <laughs> but no, but I mean, I'm um, seriously though. I think the the distributors are taking those risks on, and therefore North America is absolutely vital in order to recoup those money, and. I'll argue this to the cows come home. If you don't get the North American partner in, you will not recoup on those productions. I think, yeah, I mean, Matt's absolutely right. I think uh, if you look at the, the trend of what dramas are working at the moment, uh, you know, it's the big, noisy spy thrillers, global spy thrillers. It's IP, pre-existing IP, or people are rebooting. Showtime announced that they're rebooting Weeds and Nurse Jackie. Um, so we're sort of competing with those where arguably people are not taking risk. Um, so the shows that are working for us are those big, noisy, premium shows that either have big cast, have IP, or that are reboots themselves and global reboots. Julie, what are your thoughts on that? What's, what works as a big, expensive co-production? Uh, thrillers, definitely. I think there's, a, there's seem, a seemingly insatiable appetite from all corners of the globe for thrillers. Uh, audiences love them, networks love them. Um, they're harder to make, I think, than, 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 it, than it might seem. Uh, but they, they, they're very appealing. And talent-driven vehicles as well. Um, you know, if you've, the, having, having that, that A-list star does really, really help. Um, a, a really... Um, sought-after writer, sought-after director, the whole package is, is getting more and more, more important, I think, as well. New, new partners, uh, we, we touched on that a little bit earlier. We, we, uh, Katie, when we spoke initially, you said that once upon a time, only HBO and stars are doing 
co-productions with the UK. Uh, and now we've, uh, Sally's just told us that the CW is doing, you know, the US Broadcast Network, uh, not even wedded to the US Broadcast Network model anymore. They're doing co-productions and buying in shows from Australia and, and Canada and so forth. Who else is, is jumping in onto, into the, um, the co-production space that hasn't been previously in it? Katie. I mean, not to specifically say particular companies, but what I've seen and having made the comment about when I started many years ago, it really being HBO and stars that had worked in the UK, and now pretty much everyone over here in terms of streamers, studios have worked over there. I think, and you all might have a perspective on this, I think it makes so many more executives and producers over here comfortable because they have peers that they can ask about their experiences with producers, with line producers, with funders over there that they can, you know, exchange their experience and tell them firsthand what it was like um, to, to get more comfort and have more of a touch point for them going in and doing that. And so that's been of, of huge benefit. I know in the UK, I can't speak to a, other jurisdictions, but now that Warner Brothers Television is doing things, Universal Television, you know, after HBO and Stars, you know, TNT, Showtime, what have you, and now all the streamers that have their offices in the UK and are commissioning things out of the UK, you know, just just seeing and having that touch point of knowing a lot of other people that have done it that, you know, are in your circle that then you can... I think that's a, a really important point, actually. I, I totally agree. The, the, the beauty of co-productions for networks or streamers here in the US is um, it, it gives them a comfort that it's already coming from a place of quality. So whether it's ITV or BBC and... Those are people who are working with the best producers in the UK, et cetera. So there's already sort of a level of comfort for the people in the US to go, okay, well, tick, we've got, we know it's going to be this level, et cetera. So what they're getting is a quality threshold automatically by doing co-productions, and that comes from that experience of working with the partners all the time. So it's a really key part. And the other part of co-productions that shouldn't be forgotten is that it's cost-effective. The reason that CW and moving into this area is because they're not going to be doing any US originals anymore. So it's a way of still being able to do the drama, present it as an original, but at a different cost. What about other partners joining the, uh, the co-pro party? Um, uh, we, obviously, the SFODs have, have been doing it for a while and, and may or may not be do, doing more. But what about the AVODs? Any, anyone co any, what's the merits of co-producing with AVOD? Any, any experience on that? I mean, I've already mentioned Freebie. They're the only oh, ones yeah. we've, we've managed to do something with so far. We're looking. We've, we've recently par partnered with um, Roku on um, Malpractice, which is a thriller, a world production thriller for ITV. Um, they haven't heard it yet, but that, they, they're excited. I think if you're in the room, hope you are. Yeah, so I think, I think the, the AVOD, it's, it's going to be part of the landscape. Um, it, it already is. I think they, there'll be some good partners there. Yeah, and we, we partnered with Tubi on a a film with Vanessa Hudgens. Excellent. I want to touch on something with, that Matt raised about when the strategic issues about when you bring in a US partner, um, because obviously you can co-produce outside the, outside the US and then bring it into the US as a finished product that you sell under license, or um, what's, what's the, the strategic issues that you have in your head when you, do we, when do we bring in the US partner, or if at all? Sally? Um, 
ideally as soon as possible so that you can get the funding. But I mean, you, you, you need a script, obviously. I mean, you, you need the producer, ideally the director, the script. Um, and it depends obviously on, on the, the remit of the show, who you're taking it out to, all of that. Um, yes, the, the earlier the better. Uh, I think casting can certainly turn things. Um, which is sometimes a bit delayed in the UK comparative to the US. We don't quite have that same packaging. Um, but as Matt says, in some instances, we're having to fully finance up front and let it move on. The, the negative for that from a network point of view, US network point of view, is that they don't get to have creative input, um, which ideally each partner would like. For us, I think, you know, the, the talent package and fifth season um, very much um, is, is in with talent. Um, our proximity to, uh, to the talent is, is something that we, we think is a really important consideration in approaching the US. So I mentioned The Woman in the Wall and um, Ruth Wilson being um, a very, very strong through line into, into Showtime. But it does depend on the, on the project and... Um, Agree. Also, it's um it's important to to flag uh, projects early, but um, we will be announcing um, hopefully quite soon our first co-pro for us between Australia, the UK, and the US. And the US came in last, so uh, the major pieces in place um, ahead of the US. So it's kind of dependent on um, on the contribution. But I think talent for us is a very big consideration to think about. Thanks. For us, it, it, um, there's no sort of golden rule. Every, we, we treat each each project sort of on its own merits. We have a very bespoke strategy for every for, every, for everything that comes in. Um, the early, the better is great, but it, there's more than one bite of the cherry as well. And we, you know, we are in the very fortunate position that we 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 you know we are a big company. We 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 have an appetite for risk. We can we can do that, like you guys. Um, so yeah, if, if if the first bite you know doesn't doesn't succeed, bite and bite again. I think. <laughs> Sometimes it's worth waiting. So you have something to show. It doesn't, have, it doesn't have to be a polished episode, but you can start showing so people can sort of see the realisation of it. So I totally agree. You sort of mix it up, to be honest. It depends on the project. Cool. I've got some questions from the floor, which I'll come to in just a sec. But I just, I think it, I think it would be, uh, uh, it would, I think I, I'm morally obliged to ask the question about the strike. Um, how's the writer strike in the US going to impact the, the co-production business going forward? Sally, you're up. You're first up. Thanks. <laughs> Good luck. Uh, I think it would be really inappropriate for us to sort of talk about the opportunities at this stage. You know, they, these are, we're talking about people's livelihoods here, and I think, you know, they, they clearly have a really strong cause. Um, we have no idea how it's going to play out. I mean, obviously, we've got the Producers Guild, the, the SAG, you know, those negotiations starting. We don't know when the uh, networks are going to trigger these force measures. So, a bit unsure about the future, how long it's going to play out. Um, you know, six months' time, different kind of conversation to have. Uh, certainly from our point of view, with, with all of our productions, they're not impacted, but that's because most of them are being shot in the UK and Australia. Um, but yeah, I think it would be inappropriate to sort of be gleeful and say, Very bring it. We, we also all have production companies in the US, so... You know, we're being impacted by the strikes anyway, so I think we will probably want resolution for our own productions. And for the industry in, in general, you know, it's, it's not good, the industry. Any further comments on the strike? Alistair, 
Yeah, I mean, I think that it was probably more stressful being in anticipation of the strike. Um, that was that was alarming. But now that it's here, I think hopefully the next thing is going to be it'll be over. And for the short term, I think we're continuing with many projects that um, that uh, don't involve WGA members. But I think what's really noticeable this time around is um, there's real solidarity globally. Um, so that that um, that sentiment is being shared far beyond you know U.S. borders here. But, you know, our LA Screenings Week, um, we're really delighted to showcase Australian projects involving corporate partners, one between the BBC and ABC Australia. So it's a Catherine Tate starring vehicle called Queen of Oz. Um, a fabulous show coming from Foxtel, our first commission with, um, with Foxtel in partnership with Made Up Stories. So we've got plenty of actually sort of female-centred stories that have been uh, engineered and, and constructed um, outside of WGA um, purviews, but um, of course, we're we're um, wanting to sort of steady as she goes. I think for the for this year. Thank you, Katie. Any thoughts? I mean, not not really a comment other than really a swift and equitable resolution to what's going on. Um, we as the British Film Commission don't work really directly with WGA writers, but certainly you know want to see a a resolution so that you know all of us can be working in productive ways. Amen to that. Um, a question from the uh, floor about documentary um, co-productions. Where is it? Can you speak, can the panel speak on documentary unscripted co-productions? Is there a growing interest? Uh, touches on uh, some conversations we had earlier about um, sort of premium factual borrowing the sort of drama co-production business model and 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 I know Julie's got ITV Studios got Plimpsoll, Sally's got Silverback, all, all, I think all the production groups have got factual assets, premium factual assets. What what's our thoughts on the opportunities in in uh, the factual co-production space? Yeah, this you know this the lovely thing about natural history in particular is it is truly international. It, it, these shows are shot all around the world. They for everybody. It's it's much easier to change you know the language. You can either change the voiceover. Um, and the, the, the budgets of them make co-production essential. It's not an opportunity. It's absolutely essential to get a blue chip um, in a natural history series uh, to get multiple partners in from, from all around the globe. Uh, we did uh, launch a year on planet Earth last year, hopefully more coming from Plimsoll. And yeah, we needed, we needed co-production partners from the US, Germany and China to, to, to get that and, and a deficit from us to get that one going. Um, yeah, we, it's definitely an area that we're... Focus, investing in, um, you know, I, I do fundamentally believe that the premium factual space is really compelling for networks here. Um, you know, it's a lower return of investment uh, for them. And obviously, if you're sharing that expense with another broadcaster, that much more appealing. We did a big deal last year with stars on a Ghislaine Maxwell uh, three-parter that uh, was produced by the um, roast beef, the guys behind Leaving Neverland. <clears throat> that was a tremendous uh, result all round. Um, so yes, we are very actively taking out some very high profile opportunities. Okay. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really interesting space. Like these guys, we, we did Janet Jackson for A&E last year, which was um, following up with the second one there. We just did Wild Isles with Amazon in the natural history space. So um, actually on doc features, we're sort of experimenting slightly to, that we might actually even self-finance the whole thing um, and then take it out to the festival space to see if we can find a buy at that point as well. So I think the model is, um, is a really interesting one and one that we're 
equally by um, pursuing. Got a question here from uh, somebody anonymous. You're, we're focusing on Western content. A huge audience wants more diverse content um, from non-English language markets. Uh, how are we addressing that? Uh, put that in a co-production context. What do we think about the co-production potential for non-English language content? And I think, Matt, we discussed this once before, didn't we? You come to me on that one. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so, uh, it, yes, there are, of course, opportunities, but um, I don't belie believe that the completely... Okay, Spanish language, I think, is the best opportunity in the US in terms of bringing in co-productions, um, and I think that's, that's a really driving market. But even with Spanish um, Latin audiences, there is a move towards actually doing shows for those audiences in English. And I think we've seen that happening and coming out of Europe as well quite a bit. We produced Marie Antoinette. For, we were commissioned by Canal Plus in France, and we shot it in English, and then they dubbed it in France. And we actually have a co-production partner in the US because it was shot in English. So I think there is still, and there's one recently, ZDF. Um, that's a German show going on to CW again, but that's about 95% English again. So I, there are opportunities for subtitled non-English content in the US but the, the level of co-production and the money that you're getting for English language, it's not comparable. You know, I think um, we talk about raising new voices and, and we see it as a responsibility to, to raise new languages and has been a little bit sometimes depressing even for people that speak like me in Australianized uh, English, how difficult that can be to get away in, in the US. But um, we are really seeing a rise, um, a sort of a golden age of Asian television actually, um, we're very proud of Tokyo Vice, which is um, a really, really meticulously um, researched and, um, uh, and tricky project that um, had within sort of first few days on um, episode one, pandemic descending upon Tokyo and everywhere else. But notwithstanding that, you know, the first uh, really big US project to shoot entirely on location in Tokyo. Uh, we think that's opening doors for more uh, projects to take place on um, Japanese shores. But also at the beginning of last year, Fifth Season's um, new majority investor is CJ E&M from Korea. So we're very much part of um, expanding uh, the appeal and, and, um, and boundaries of, of sharing in K content. Um, obviously, plenty of connective tissue between ourselves and our uh, Korean owners to, to mine that. So uh, we're certainly by no means wedded to um, American English series. Fantastic. I think that's pretty much all we've got time for. We've got a red light flashing over there. We're two minutes over. So all that remains for me to do is to thank uh, our distinguished panel, Sally, Matt, Julie, Alistair and Katie, and to thank you for your questions. Thank you. US-based ad-supported streaming platform Roku topped 70 million active users globally earlier this year as it continues to build its roster of third-party channels and its own, powered by homegrown originals and acquisitions. Despite cutting back on headcount in the face of an economic downturn, the company remains committed to commissioning and licensing shows for its Roku channel, overseen by Roku Media Vice President and Head of Content David Eilenberg, working together with Head of Originals Brian Tenenbaum and Vice President of Content Acquisition and Programming Jennifer Vox. The trio spoke with Hayley Babcock about their strategy, priorities and recent highlights, including The Great American Baking Show and a new NFL documentary from Skydance. My name is Haley Babcock. I'm really, really pleased to be here and to be able to 
host and moderate this session with the wonderful people from Roku. I want to let you know whom we're speaking to today. David Eilenberg, he is the head of content at Roku, the Roku channel. And Roku is a platform, as we know, but we are focusing a little bit more on the channel today. Brian Tannenbaum is the head of originals at Roku, so the commissioning original content there. And Jen Vox, who is the head of strategy and programming and acquisition. So the acquired programming that goes on the Roku channel runs through her division. And um, as I was saying, Roku is a streaming platform, but what some of you may not know is Roku is the number one streaming platform in the US, Canada, and Mexico. They have 70 million active, account. active accounts, and that's 170 million viewers, I mean, Roughly. subscribers. It's amazing numbers. And they stream many, many channels. But today, as I said, we are focusing a little bit more on their own channel. Um, they have varied genres. They have varied originals and varied acquisitions. And one thing that David said when we were first speaking a little bit to prep for this session that I think is key to all of this, they are all adamantly free and ad-supported. And it makes it very interesting for any of you out here who are producers and any of you out here who are from distributors who are interested in this platform for your content. David, I'd like to start with you and ask you, what few things would you like the audience here to know specifically about Roku that they may not know? Um, sure. I mean, I think you hit on a couple of the most important ones in your intro. So we are the largest streaming service in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. As Haley said, that's 70 million active accounts or about 170 million people for whom the home screen they see when they turn on their TV is a, is a Roku home screen. And that gives us a really amazing advantage to reach a mass audience and also many different audiences within that audience. And that's why you're seeing such a range of programs, both original and acquired, when you look at our reel. I think to your other point, while not every app on our platform is free and ad supported, of course people are going through Roku to get to their Netflix or get to their Macs. The Roku channel itself is free and ad supported. And it's also pretty widely distributed. It's on our platform, but you can get it on Fire, you can get it on Samsung, you can get it free via the web. It's a, it's a top 10 app nationwide, more largely. And then I think the, the final thing just to note is that we really see ourselves as a true independent. We, we sit in a very interesting place in the streaming landscape. Um, everybody needs to be on our platform. Uh, all of our competitors are also our clients and our partners, and that's an interesting tightrope to walk sometimes. But I think as long as we keep partnership in mind, we're able to create win-win scenarios that keep people coming back. So that's the, that's the philosophy, at least. That makes good sense and is very interesting. It puts you in a unique, a, a unique position, I think, and in a unique place in the marketplace. Um, speaking of the marketplace, and the marketplace here in abroad, but here in particular, has been changing pretty dramatically over the past few years. And very recently, with the writer strike added on top of it and with consolidation and so on and so forth, um, but also changes in the marketplace can mean opportunity for some businesses, some people, some individuals. I'd like to know from each of you, you know, what changes have you seen in the marketplace and what specifically do you think that means for you and your, your piece of the business? Um, Brian, maybe we'll start with you on that. Sure. Um, from the original side, I think as we see viewership going away or declining from traditional broadcast and linear over to streaming, we see that as a huge opportunity for original content. And beyond that, 
as David had mentioned a bit earlier, you'll see sort of there's been a lag of the ad dollars going from broadcast linear to streaming as well. And so we're finding that there's a huge opportunity not just in the people viewing, particularly originals in the streaming space, but that the, there's a huge opportunity to capture the ad dollars as well. And so uh, we're committed to original content here at the Roku channel. It's an exciting time since we're still in our early days. And I think there's a huge bright opportunity ahead, given you'll continue to see not only a shift in viewing, but the ad dollars following behind it and we are proudly ad sponsored and Jennifer does it have do, do you have any different perspective or a different perspective on changes in the marketplace or how it has affected what you've done in terms of your programming or acquisition dealing with distributors looking for content that sort of thing sure I think to Brian's point that COVID accelerated the shift from linear uh, television to streaming and our founder's vision is that one day all TV and TV advertising will be streamed, and so we're in early days, which is very exciting. But as a result, you now have to acquire enough content to keep people coming back on a regular basis. We have over 300 fast channels, which range from entertainment and news, and we have wonderful partners there from linear networks like the BBC and A&E through to ABC News, NBC News. So we have very strong partners leaning in in that respect. Um, and then we also have um, VOD for people to watch. We want to meet people how they want to watch it, when they want to watch, and what they want to watch. So we have strong content as well on VOD for that more, uh, you know, lean forward, I'm going to watch this today. You're more appointment viewing, Brian, but I'm more collision viewing, I, I guess. Uh, that's, that's interesting. That's a really interesting way to look at it and to explain it. That makes good sense. Um, what about for you, David, from your perspective? Because I know you, obviously, you touch both, both of what Jennifer and what Brian are doing, but any other changes in the marketplace that you've seen that we haven't touched on here? And or if so, you know, are there other opportunities out of it that you can that you can pull? Well, I mean, I think, um, I, and this has less to do with us particularly and more just to do with evolving viewer habits, but we are in as truly global a market for content as there's ever been. And I think there's been inflection points that you can point to Squid Game. You know, there's there's many you can name, but I think that's, that's exciting to know, which is, uh, especially for new generations of viewers, voices not just from here but from around the world can really break through and that feels that feels like it's been happening for a while but mm -hmm. there's an intensity to it that feels new and that can help inform what you're able to do and maybe open up the field of where you're looking to create and find content? And well, sure. I mean, in, in a very tactical way, some of some of our um, early Roku originals have been in partnership with Canadian and Australian and UK networks. And, you know, there's just no reason that can't work. Schitt's Creek was a Canadian show. Children Ruin Everything, which is on the Roku channel, is a Canadian show. The, the newsreader started life in Australia, and, and now we share it with the ABC. So... Uh, I think all of that's very exciting. And, yeah. and again, just sort of um, uh, exposes the viewer to voices and perspectives that he or she may not have gotten to see before. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, there was something we talked about a little bit earlier that I'd like to bring to the attention of the audience. And, and maybe, Brian, again, I'm going to go to you to talk about how your different departments, especially what you do with originals and what Jennifer does with acquisitions, how you inform and communicate with each other and look at the whole in order to serve your viewer? Sure. Um, I think one of the best things about working at Roku, I'll, I'll say there's two things. One, it's the power of the platform, and two, it's the power of the team. Proud to be on David's team, which is a small curated team where we are encouraged and proudly work together. And I think the prime example of a show I'm quite proud of that will show you the different touch points of how we came together was 
we just recently launched the Great American Baking Show, which is based off of the IP Great British Bake Off produced by Love. Um, and when the opportunity came, it had been tried twice in the US, uh, once on CBS, once on ABC. It had been off the airs for a few years. They approached us with the opportunity. And it was a pleasure to be able to sit down with Jen and look at the opportunity, not just from the original standpoint, but what are the other Roku touch points? What else can we provide? Um, there were 200 library episodes of the British version that had AVOD and OTT fast rights available. And so worked hand in hand with Jen to construct a deal with Love, where not only were we able to launch a, a new US version, but acquire 200 library episodes that are available not only on VOD, but on a single IP fast channel. And so, oh, there, I don't know if you're- Thank you. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's the first, it's one of the only places you can see the early seasons of the baking of British Bake Off if you're, if you're interested in it. But what I think it shows is that we're, like, we're an entire ecosystem where we can deliver content how you want to see it. Mm -hmm. And so it's working cross-functionally with all of the partners in order to ensure that not only is the content there, but that it's surfaced. And we can talk about how we use on-platform placements in order to- I would, I would love to, that, that's sort of my follow-up question. So then you have all of this content, you've curated this, let's say, multifaceted ecosystem for this show and this kind of show. How do you feed that to your viewer? Do you want to? Do you want to take that, David? Or, or yeah, Jennifer? I can. I can start. So um, feed. Sorry for the pun. Yeah. <laughs> I want cake now. That's okay. We'll, we'll do. <laughs> we'll do food puns as much as you want. Um, so again, it starts with the home screen because because we're able to achieve mass reach. We can place a show. You know where those seventy million active accounts can see it. Invite them to click in, and that's some of the most valuable real estate in TV. And the reason we know that is because much of the time we're not using it for our own ends. We're working with partners to do media and entertainment advertising. So House of the Dragon took over our home screen when it launched last year. But when we do get to use it for our own ends, like we did for Great American Baking Show, it's a just sort of unbeatable entry point into content. But I think to what Brian was saying, and maybe Jen, you can talk a little bit more about this, we don't want people to just watch the American version and then leave. We want them to then discover the Great British Bake Off library and all of the other food content within the Roku channel and, and through our premium subscription partners. So maybe you can talk a little bit about the larger ecosystem and how we keep it healthy. Sure. I mean, what, one of the biggest opportunities, as Brian said, it's the power of the platform. And what that means is we have that one-to-one -one relationship with the viewer. We're able to drive people directly into what they want to watch based on our machine learning algorithm and other uh, marketing touch points that we have across the platform. So if you have a predisposition to watch, say, all the baking shows and cake shows, we've got cake channels, we've got Cake Boss and Discovery Plus, which is a premium subscription channel within the Roku channel, just to say channel a lot. Um, it's really <laughs> exciting because we can really keep people engaged and drive them into what they want to watch. Can I say one more thing on the power Please. of the platform? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to give an example. I don't know how many people here are Roku users. Candidly, I was not prior to starting at the organization. But when we talk about the power of the platform, it's, it's quite visual. And I'm going to walk you through that visual with an example in front of us so you can see what it's like. Picture you go on to Roku and it looks like this, where David's face is a Netflix tile and my face may be Disney Plus and Jen's face may be Amazon. 
the entire right side of our platform, so all this open space, is a giant rectangle where we can put anything we want inside. And from someone that came from a studio that produced content, one of the things that I cared about the most was that people would watch my show. As a creator, as a talent, all I wanted to know was that these people could easily find what I was working on. And what I am so grateful for and what I share so happily and proudly with all of our content partners is that we will put their show on the entire right side of what you are looking at. They have millions upon millions of people each day and each night with an intent to view, which before they make a programming choice are served a piece of our content. And I think in terms of differentiating, this is the thing that, this is how we stand out. We are willing to use the power of our platform proudly to support the creators and the talent behind our original series. And that is a gift that we are, are proud to share. We've got a couple of questions here from the Great. audience that I'd like to bring in because it may tie in a little bit with, with what we've just been touching on. So one of the things, and I'll throw this out here to any of you, what kind of properties or IP does the Roku channel look for to develop and produce? And then there's a how many movies and shows will they produce in the coming year? I don't know if you can speak to the second part, but perhaps to the, to the first part, or perhaps you can speak to both parts. I think parts. we can speak at least roughly to both of those parts. I would turn okay. it to Brian to talk generally about what we're commissioning in originals and, and how many we think we can support in any given calendar year. I'd say we have a firm commitment to originals, both on the scripted and unscripted side, both series, specials, one-offs, and movies. Uh, we are looking for things that are brand-friendly, co-viewing, and if I were to be more tra most transparent, great title, great concept, great talent. Um, I believe, as you've heard in The Power of the Platform, I have a wonderful opportunity to showcase to our streaming audience something that they should watch. And if a conceit is clear right away with great talent and a great title, it will be watched. The, the data shows that. And so clarity and idea, clarity and concept with impeccable talent, I think, goes a long way. Um, some of the IP that we have dealt with is the Great American Baking Show. I would say um, our talent partnerships have been incredible in our early days, whether it be Kevin Hart, John Cena, Jessica Alba, Sofia Vergara, uh, Paul and Prue from Bake Off. Um, the NFL. We just the announced. NFL. Yeah. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> uh, the WWE. Like uh, All of our partners are leaning in to success. And then from a volume standpoint, I'm going to throw it back to my boss, David. <laughs> Hi. So, slick, um, slick yeah. Brian. <laughs> so so we're, we're not trying to be in the high volume originals game. Part of the point of the power of the platform is that it is precious real estate. And since we want to deploy it on behalf of originals, we're talking about tens of original projects a year, not hundreds, if that makes sense. But I think um, the upshot of that is that we really can treat each one of them with care. And I think that is part of what's drawing creators and producers to us in these early days. I'm gonna plus one that I'm also quite proud that we renew series for subsequent seasons, including series that have yet to air. And so as part of adding on to what David said, there's a curation such that we can have success and reward those that we work with in that success. And a major part of what we are committed to do is subsequent seasons of series as opposed to just one and done. Okay, but I do want to really add that it's very important that once we've done that, the journey is far from over. And Jen is responsible then for keeping those viewers happily in our ecosystem for hundreds and thousands of hours afterward. So that's where the synergy between our teams comes in. And so I don't know if you want to talk about sort of your 
your commissioning strategy at all as as the person who provides like 99% of the hours in the Roku channel? Uh, sure. I mean, we look for uh, content that's going to resonate with our audience. And it's, as you would expect, it's recognizable shows from either broadcast or cable. It's from strong international partners, like working with BBC, ITV, and Cineflix. I see them over there. Um, <laughs> you know, just people who have a large volume of library of content where I can also take a look at what IP do you have available to reboot. We can license the library and then send it over to Brian and his team to take a look at whether or not we'd want to commission that new series. So we're always looking to see what is out there, what makes sense. Um, we love MOWs, especially especially around Christmas and holidays. Uh, I don't know if that Can happens. I ask you about fast? Sure. So I feel like <laughs> a lot of people talk about fast. It's like the new trendy thing. Why do you think it's taken off? And how is it sort of, I'm curious if I were in the audience, I'd want to hear like a little about the EPG, right? Like you go onto these streaming services and you just think it's these tiles. And that's the VOD portion of it. But so much of what Jen also leads is this whole fast world. So I'm going to ask you, how would you describe what fast is? How is it differentiated on Roku? And, and why? Why do you think it's so successful? So fast for those who aren't aware, are, it's free ad-supported television, which is the linear stream like you would get in basic cable and pay TV where you join in progress. What's amazing about you know, Roku as a platform is you have many entry points into what we call the electronic programming guide, which is the old-fashioned guide that you would see on, say, the TV guide scroll. But the difference is it is personalized. So you can go in and you can, you know, have your content that you want to watch bubble up to the top of the electronic programming guide. That's one entry way in. The other is what's referred to you once you're in the Roku channel um, in the VOD section, you will see thumbnails. And then once you go in, we work with partners and we can spin up a single IP channel like the Great British Bake Off all the way through to Baywatch. We work with folks like Warner Brothers Discovery where we have content like uh, Westworld. But, uh, so we work and we uh, acquire across a variety of content types, like uh, we have food and home and we have this old house, which Roku also uh, owns. And so it's just making sure, again, what do you want to watch and making sure it's there for you to watch it. Somebody asked, what's the origin story of how this old house came to Roku? It's such an iconic piece of IP. Yeah, I think, I mean, this predated my arrival. Okay. Um, I th this old house has had a few owners. It, it was owned by Time Inc. for a while, and yeah. then I think by private equity. I, I think as Roku started to contemplate originals, because just very brief history, Roku itself is 20 years old, but the Roku channel is only about six years old, and originals were really in our first year of true originals. So it's a fairly new initiative. But the, the big first two steps into originals were the purchase of this old house and then the purchase of the Quibi library. Um, I came with the Quibi library. And Brian and, and, and Brian. Um, <laughs> so, so, so a lot of that was about learnings, but it wasn't just about learnings. Those things succeed. This old house is a terrific business for us and a brand booster. And some of the Quibi titles uh, that came over in the library succeeded well enough on the service that they've since been renewed. So That is a very robust answer for yeah. people who weren't even there when it happened. So thank you for that, really. Yeah. I mean, it, mean it, it, show, it goes to show, though, something that you were all saying earlier, the communication between all of the people and departments in your company is pretty open and pretty um, robust so that you learn things from each other and things aren't siloed. And I guess one of those points that I want to just get to briefly, um, Brian mentioned data in part one of his, you know, one of his comments and, and you are, as a team, you are, you have data available to you and that helps to inform 
your creative decision-making to a certain degree, correct? Can you speak to that a little bit? Um, sure, yeah. I mean, we are, we are a tech company. And um, even more specifically, we're a tech company that's nearly exclusively dedicated to delivering TV and film. The, the Roku software is, is really the only dominant software that was designed originally and exclusively for TV. You, so don't, you don't have cell phones, really? <laughs> we, have, uh, we have mobile applications, but the heart of the company has always been in TV. It's, our software is not adapted mobile software. Right. It's bespoke for that screen. And so, you know, as part of that, of course, um, we're going to look at uh, the data that we can and try to derive um, good conclusions from that. We want to we want to serve the user. So if we see people gravitating toward certain types of fare or really even towards certain talents, we may go seek them out, right? If we see a lot of con consumption of a particular actor's films or TV shows, that's a good reason for us to, to go build a relationship. That's great. Um, I'd like to get to two questions that are related to each other and ask you to maybe speak briefly generally to them. One is, what is the best way to send avails list for an Avon distribution deal on Roku? And the other one is, how does one pitch originals to Roku? So could you each speak broadly to those two questions? Uh, sure. I, I, I think the best way, if you don't already have a relationship uh, with one of the content acquisition folks, is to send your avails to an email uh, address, which I don't know if you want me to give it now or at the end. I'm go ahead and give it now. People because we do monitor the uh, inbox. We do go through it on a regular basis and then reach out when we feel like the content uh, will be super served on our platform. Email address? Okay, it's TRC. The Roku channel is my guess, yeah. right? TRC, yeah, TRC yep. underscore AVOD, A-V-O-D, underscore submissions at roku.com. Clearly they get this question a lot because it has its own dedicated email address. <laughs> Thank you for that, Jennifer. No problem. Brian? Uh, yeah, I think... Candidly, the best way is not through David or I. It's through the team that's been empowered to make purchasing and greenlight decisions. And so the best way is to have representatives, whether it be agents, managers, or lawyers, reach out directly to the executives on the creative team who can evaluate and come with quick analyses to then make recommendations to more senior, let me, senior members of the team. Okay. We really do try to be quick. That is true. They are a small and nimble team, for sure. Um, we're getting la down to our last couple of minutes here, and somebody says, thanks for finally explaining fast. So well done, Jen. <laughs> um, I'd like to ask each of you from your perspective, is there anything that we haven't yet touched on today that you think, if you were sitting in the audience, you would benefit by knowing about Roku? I'll start with you, Jennifer. Oh, that's a good question. Um, we are the streaming platform for everyone. We have kids and family within the Roku channel all the way through to Fast and VOD. So uh, we want to be the first stop for shopping. Brian? Uh, I'm grateful that I think the future is quite bright for the organization, particularly with the commitment to originals. To the extent you're not Roku users, I'm not just saying this because I work here, it, the, the ease, the value, the choice that comes with it is spectacular. The organization has built an incredible platform and it's a pleasure to be able to work cross-functionally such that as I go to the community and talk with talent and producers, I know I have the backing of cross-functional colleagues to make their things a success. Um, and I will continue to say that and pound that. Over to you, David. 
Um, I guess I would say that we're new enough that we're not married to legacy deal models and we're able to approach each piece of business to some extent situationally. I think that's allowed us to be nimble in getting properties that people think we might not have otherwise have gotten. And that's always with a win-win philosophy in mind. So if we're going to ask people to be flexible, then we want to make sure that we're giving them legitimate upside and we go into all of our partnerships with that mindset. I think this was really interesting. I personally, like you, I learned a lot about Roku speaking with all of you. I'm, I've drunk the Kool-Aid, Brian. Send me the thing. And oh, I will <laughs> no. send it to you, but I will also say go to the RokuChannel.com. Yes. Check out the Great American Baking Show. I, will. I would no. appreciate it if you would watch it all the way through. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, seriously, I've heard from a lot of people who are like, yeah, I only use Roku. It's great. And so um, I think it's, it's in a difficult environment where it's very hard to get commissions right now, where money is tight, where selling your content is getting more and more difficult. I find it really refreshing to be able to talk with people who are really energized about bringing new content in and have a really robust platform that is growing for that content. So thanks for this positive and sort of uplifting, in my view, conversation. And thank you all for being here and for submitting your questions. Sorry we could not get to all of them. Thanks, Have everybody. a great Thanks, afternoon. Everyone. Thank you, Haley. Banerjee Kids and Family is behind series including The Unstoppable Yellow Yeti for Disney and YLE, plus new titles Shasha and Milo for Tencent and Warner Brothers Discovery, and the company was among those at the Annecy International Animation Film Festival in France this week, presenting the latter and other titles to buyers. Head of Content Development Gary Milne spoke to Carolina Kaminska at the event about the place of such co-productions within the company's content strategy, a new show in development called Rocket Dragons, rebooting Totally Spies and how a drive for more grounded programming in kids' TV is taking over from fantasy. Here we are in beautiful Annecy. Yes. What is Banerjee Kids and Family up to while you're here? So Banerjee Kids and Family is made up of our six labels. Um, so we're, we've got the full contingent here looking to um, showcase our new shows. Um, a big one that we're highlighting is Shasha and Milo. Um, that's our six to nine action comedy. Um, it's really uh, a wonderful, funny show for the gender neutral. It is. Um, it tells the story of uh, two twins, Milo and Shasha, who discover they're the next in a long line of guardians uh, tasked with protecting their home world from dark things that are going under the under the town um, and so they do that by taking on a really cool hybrid form um, using their talismans um, but fundamentally it's like stories of being sort of at middle school dealing with being different you know Shasha comes from the world of being a, uh, a cat she spent 12 years living as a cat and Milo spent 12 years living as a boy and I think you know, this is a show we've worked with Pingo Entertainment in Korea. That was their original idea, and we partnered with them back in 2019, so just before the, the pandemic. And um, it was just what resonated for us is just that idea of exploring what it means to be a kid through a fantasy lens. Um, so we're super excited. That's our big show. That's with Tencent and Discovery Kids Latam. Uh, so oh, that's on my side, I'm, I'm here pitching that. Um, and then just really, um, like always at these markets, it's a good opportunity to meet people from around, around the globe. 
connect with all the, the buyers, find out what the trends are, what people are looking for. So, um, yeah, that's that's uh, that's what we're here doing. And 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 Sasha and Milo is yeah. a co-production. It is, yes. Um, so, tell me a little bit about your co-production strategy and how important co-pros are to you because they are pretty important to the industry in general. Yeah, I think. Um, more so in the kids industry, I think in the kids content business, uh, co-productions are kind of the norm. Um, I think mostly that's uh, partly to do with financing because um, to get something fully financed out of one broadcaster is quite rare. So we obviously look at ways we can um, you know, find our different co-producers across the globe in order to, to finance the productions. But also for us, as Banerjee Kids and Family, we really look to the talent. And because we're, we're agnostic in that sense, we can go out to the best talent from around the world. So with something like um, Shash and Milo, that's a co-production with an amazing South Korean studio. And that's something that I think is quite exciting, especially when everyone's looking for international hits. You know, you to have something that's truly international, you can't just work parochially. You need to partner with people across the world. Um, so, th- so in terms of our strategy, we go partly to, you know, it's where's the financing, who are the commissioning broadcasters, but also who are the creative partners and the studios that we can work with across the globe. So um, I don't think, we always say this, there's never one size fits all with a project. Um, but definitely finding strong partners um, is really key to us. Um, if you think about a, a previous project that we did, uh, The Unstoppable Yellow Yeti, that was Disney Plus and YLE, that's another co-production with a Finnish studio. Again, fantastic creative, and we can bring to that our, our um, you know, we bring, on our side, we bring both, you know, we're a co-producer in the sense of the, the creative, but also we're a distributor, we look after LM and we also do brand. We've got a multi-channel network that we run on our AVOD business side and fast channels. So, you know, we bring a lot to the table, but we also look for creative partners and strong partners across the world. And is there anything in development at the moment that you can tell us about? Um, I'm uh, So I'm here at the market. Uh, I'm bringing an original IP to the market called Rocket Dragons. Um, so it's a, a series that follows a group of school-age dragons who attend Rocket Dragon Academy, and they go on help and rescue missions across the cosmos. Um, it's super exciting new project that we're um, that I'm I'm literally just pitching now at, at the market. So it's early days. Um, the thing that uh, really interests me, though, thinking about that project, this is an original idea developed in-house at Banner Jacobs and Family. But one of the things that I've been thinking of is there's such a thirst for projects that are based on something, that are, have an existing IP, that have some sort of traction in some way. So what I'm thinking about as a development exec and, and a, a creative exec in, in the business is are there still opportunities for original, truly original IPs? Um, I think obviously depending on the different age targets, it has a different, uh, maybe there's more opportunity for originals in the slightly older spectrum. 
um, you know, uh, one of our shows on the live action side that's doing incredibly well is Silver Point, um, which is our live action sci-fi mystery series that just won the RTS award. You know, that's a completely original idea coming from Lee Walters and Stephen Andrew. Um, but I'm trying to think at the moment is the is the nervousness around original IP coming from the fact that we're entering quite a fragmented content market? And so does that then bring with it nervousness around what's gonna cut through? And if it's based on something already, your audience will be able to find that. Um, but look at the big hitters out in the market already. Paw Patrol, original. Bluey, original. Um, you know, need I go on? Um, you know, all the, the the big shows. Pepper was an original. Uh, so SpongeBob, an original. So and Shush and Milo is an original, and we're really hopeful that that will find its place. We've got um, our brand and marketing teams working heavily on making sure that the, it cuts through in a, a really competitive market because we think it's got strong chance. So in that original space, is yeah. there anything in particular that you would like to have on your slate? Are there any kind of genres or styles or anything that you think you might be missing that isn't out there at the moment? Oh, that is a really good... You know that's a tough question. Yeah, I know it's a tough question. I like that. I think... Um, I think... Oh. I mean, I think it tends to, with, with IPs, you tend to see, like, a zeitgeist or themes and things that came up. I think for a long time, but for the last couple of years, there's been a lot of sword and sorcery. Um, and I think there was a lot of requests or people asking for things to be a bit more grounded and representing kids' real experiences and their real lives. And so I think, you know, in recent sort of developments a lot of we've had a lot of things in the fantasy space um and so um oh yeah you've, you've got me there but maybe something truly yeah something truly grounded possibly for our audience i mean we always try to find the universal stories um that reflect our audience's lives but again the challenge is if you want something to have international appeal you've got to find the universalities uh, you know so yeah. well it was interesting that you that you mentioned existing IP yeah um, because that that is that there is a very kind of big demand for that as you say um, in terms of reboots re rebooting old yeah. TV shows yeah um, you've got a new series of Totally Spies coming yeah. out next year yeah um, which I think is great because I remember watching that yeah. back in the day um, what is your your stance on, on reboots and when do they work? I think, um, yeah, thank you for mentioning Totally Spies because I'm super fan of that too. But I would say you really have to be willing to evolve. So, you know, Totally Spies launched in 2001. It ran for six seasons in a movie. And of course, it's beloved. We know that. There's a fervent fandom. But also we've got to think about the core audience and that core audience is that 6 to 11 now and they've got a different view on the world because the world is very different than 2000 so I think I 
when we when I was developing Totally Spies season seven, it was super important for me to retain the DNA of the original, but bring the girls into the now. So for me, that was working on things like, you know, drawing the three women out from the center, finding out more about them. What what do they what what do they love outside of? Um, being a spy or fashion or boys and just looking at what is important to the Gen Alpha audience and I think social responsibility, the environment, I think classic universal things like friendship and family and community remain but thinking about those other touch points that feel relevant but while still keeping it a comedy, action, engaging series. Um, We've also looked at, you know, modernizing the, the look a little bit. Um, and we've also looked at, you know, how do we uh, update the music and refresh things. But for me, sorry, to answer your, the, I know I talk a lot, but really to answer your question succinctly is just, they work when they've been allowed to evolve and become relevant to today. I remember when I watched Totally Spies, I felt that it had a bit of an anime style about yeah. it, the animation. Yeah. Um, now, anime style programming and manga are yeah. becoming quite popular again, yeah. really popular again, yeah. especially in, in Europe and in France in particular. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about that? And is, is anime style content something that you would like to do more in? Um, well, obviously, like because of Totally Spice having that um, anime or franime style, so it's something that I was very excited to get back into. I think. Um, if I look at, you know, the reasons why, um, I think the streamers have have been influential in bringing a broader breadth of, like, anime content to, to, to the West, and that's really exciting. But again, I think, for me, yes, it's, it's exciting if we can make sure that, again, it feels approachable, universal, not appropriative, because that's another super important thing. It's like working with the right partners that you feel that you are um, delivering on um, that aesthetic. Uh, I um, yeah, I'm super excited for the for the right IP, the right partners. Definitely, I think it's, a, it's an exciting genre to continue to work in. And I think Totally Spies has kind of you know rekindled that love for us for sure. Yeah. Um, you mentioned trends earlier and you're trying yeah. to gauge what, what new trends are. Yeah. What are you seeing? I think, the, like I'd mentioned to you already, that idea that we were being asked a lot to make sure that whatever the genre, that, that it's, it's accessible and relatable to the audience. So I think anything that was maybe too high concept was it, there was a, a glut of high concept um, IP uh, content going into the market. So I think it, it swung the other way. Whether we call that a trend or not, I'm not sure, but definitely that relatability, that grounded thing. Um, and dare I say, it, yeah, this idea of stuff with built-in, built-in audience. But what I do think is interesting on that with the built-in audience is it always used to be very much like a, a, a reboot or it's based on a book. But with the um, sort of uh, popularity of things like the Sonic movies or um, The Last of Us in the adult space, 
game adaptations. I think everyone is looking into game adaptations. But then going beyond that, what are the podcast adaptations? What are the, you know, what are the other content uh, cross-pollination, I guess you could call it, that could happen? So, you know, TikTok uh, stars or just being... um, I guess creative about what the source material is that could be adapted. Um, But I do find with adaptations, the thing what I think about all the time is, you don't just want a moving book. I think when you do a good adaptation, and it's sort of answering the question you asked before a bit further, is just what's the different experience that you're offering on TV? Because if I'm going to a game, I'm going to it for a certain, maybe more active sort of experience. On TV, it's a bit more passive. But what is it that I'm offering that the book didn't offer? Or what is the sort of expansion on that story that I'm offering? Um, I think that's super important. Um, um, Banerjee Kids and Family bought Kindle Entertainment last yes. year, um, which specialises in four quad and YA drama. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about your plans in that space, specifically with, with YA? Um, is it something that you're looking into more, and is adult animation something that you would... Yeah, so um, I can talk to you, yeah, so YA and, and adult animation, um, uh, in, sorry, the YA genre in general is really exciting and interesting. What we are trying to figure out right now is where the buyers are. I think the audience is there for that content, but it's whether the the buyers are there for it. And I think the streamers have opened up that as as a space for that genre. But there's still, depending on who you speak to, what does YA really mean? And YA has a different term in publishing to then what it has on Um, certain platforms and so I think what we need to be thinking of is more in sort of is it are we talking 13 plus because I think animation specifically and live action in the kids space sort of always went up to about 12 and then after 12 it was where do do you go again depending on the territory Um, yes we're definitely looking into that we've got we've been having conversations with certain um, creators in the YA space but also I'd like to mention um, Movimenti um, who is our studio we bought from Italy so of course they're in the adult animation space they've just with um, Zero Calcare's series Terrell on the Dotted Line that was the number one show on uh, in Italy it, it was it's amazing and it's just the second series has just launched it's doing incredibly well there as well um, so we're as a group we're active in that space but it's uh, now figuring out you know where are the buyers who who where are the opportunities because definitely the audience is ready so yeah actually yeah it's good that you mentioned Movimenti because I've, I've spoken to Movimenti about, about the, 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 the adult yeah. animation side of things yeah. so I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up actually. Um, what are the biggest challenges and opportunities that, that you're seeing in the sector at the moment? Um, I think the challenges are possibly a lot, there seems to be a lot of uncertainty because there's been a lot of change um, certainly at, you know the global networks Um, And we're still, I think, following, you know, we're still seeing the ramifications of a pandemic 
Uh, and it was amazing that the animation industry got to continue during the pandemic. Um, and uh, But I think, yeah, there's a challenge of just possibly um, uncertainty in the market means that we're looking where are the commission, commissions coming from, where are the opportunities available. But we're super agile, right? So as I mentioned about the co-production ideal, we look for opportunities where, where are the commissions coming from? What are the types of strategic partnerships we can can work with and find? Um, and then um, I guess one of the exciting things is at the same time, we're still in like, there's so much content and there's more opportunities out there as well in terms of blooming platforms, um, fast channels for distribution, where we've got a really healthy multi-channel network on our AVOD um, side, so we're looking at what are our digital um, propositions, um, could we do digital first IPs, um, and you know one of the key things for Banerjee is because of who we are, we're really talent driven, like we're a safe space, uh, an exciting place for talent to come to. So for me, it's, that's one of the things I get super excited by in what I do, is um, looking for the next talent, um, finding fresh voices, you know, diversity, diversity, equity and inclusion is super important to us too, so what are the voices uh, that haven't had their story told yet, and how can we help facilitate that? I think that's super exciting, and the market wants that too. So, um, yeah, I think that's it. I think, but but we, you know, as Banerjee, we've um, we we go, grow, go from strength to strength. Um, so while there is market uncertainty, we've got healthy number of productions right now across the group. Um, so we're just going to continue trying to make high quality content. Um, I would say, last thing just popped into my mind is, one, one thing I would say is about one of the market demands is quality. I think I'm seeing, you know, everyone is expecting the highest quality across the board. I'm not just talking on screen, it's off screen as well. Um, so, you know, that's something that, as Banerjee Kids and Family, we've got the ability to bring in that talent and, and bring that quality that we're super um, proud of. I mean, Shush and Milo, not going to toot our own horn, but it looks pretty good. I can't wait for people to see it. So, yeah. So, what are your core ambitions? Would you say over the next, say, three years? Uh, core ambitions. Um, uh, one thing I would love to see Shasha Milo become a an international hit and brand. We think we've put all the elements into it to make it um, a big brand. I'm desperate for everyone to see Totally Spies season seven and I hope that's well received and we would love to do more of that. Um, and really, uh, again, just making sure that we're bringing a kind of what I said to you earlier about bringing fresh ideas, fresh stories, untold stories, um, new talent, um, and uh, you know, staying um, a market leader in in the kids space, um, yeah, and delivering good quality content, I guess. Gary Milne speaking with Carolina Kaminska. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more interviews by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station from Monday. 
The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest news and views from the international TV business by following C21 online on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.